0: Welcome to Revenue Champions, I'm Alice
1: and I'm John. We interview leaders, experts and entrepreneurs in the B2B space.
0: Giving you the inside tips, tricks and hacks for you to grow and scale your B2B business today.
1: Welcome everybody to Revenue Champions episode 5. Today we're joined by Nazma Kaban, mastermind of Cognizm's revenue engine. So welcome Nazma.
0: Thank you, thank you for having me.
1: No problem at all. Really, really excited for this one today. I'm really excited to dig into how you managed to get Cognizant to that 10 million ARR mark. Nazma, I suppose to kick things off, um, it'll be really, really good to give people a quick introduction um, if people haven't been on LinkedIn for the last two years and haven't seen you publicized everywhere. um, Just a little bit of history into you.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So today I'm, I'm working with B2B SaaS businesses in an advisory capacity and helping them build and scale their revenue. Prior to this, I helped Cognizant scale its revenue engine from zero to 10 million in ARR. I've always worked in sales since the age of 15. I actually started in BTC. I was booking meetings for timeshare events, literally cold calling out of a BT phone book interrupting people whilst they were having dinner. Um, I also like sold vacuum cleaners door-to-door. After I graduated I took the plant and moved to the B2B space and I started as a recruitment consultant seeking a professional career in sales and here we are today.
1: Perfect so back back to the roots of cold calling. Um, so yeah, Nassim, I suppose that kind of ties into um, my first question so I suppose a lot of your experience prior to joining Cognizant was very focused on um, you being an individual contributor. So it'll be really, really interesting just to understand your perspective when you join Cognizant um, as the head of sales, um, as the first hire. Like, What were your key priorities joining that role and how did you kind of prioritize that? Because obviously when you joined Cognizant, it was a very, very early stage, different business to where it is now. So how did you how did you prioritize that?
0: Yeah, I'm actually really happy that we're doing this podcast whilst I'm out of the business because it's given me time to reflect and and also be completely candid about my experiences when I first started. I guess my personal priority was to genuinely keep my job. <laughs> it was quite the leap for me to go from, from somebody who's an individual contributor. Previously, I'd only actually worked for a year as a closing rep and then make that leap to a head of sales. That was huge for me and it was a risk on my part but it was also like a huge decision that uh, Cognizant had made at the time so I think if I'm thinking about my priorities it was to keep my job keeping my job meant delivering performance so my focus uh, my absolute priority was getting the first customer in and although there were processes that I had to create to enable me to do that that was the primary focus for me
1: okay so purely focus on that on that first custom. so i know if we look back at kind of the evolution of any product um especially when you're in that seed stage going up to like a, a c uh, like a series a funding rounds that maybe the product isn't 100 percent perfect how important do you think it is that you have like a viable working product when when you are establishing and building your sales team and looking to scale up is there do you think that's one of the reasons why a lot of um early stage companies fail or do you think it's predominantly down to the fact they haven't built out a, a fluid sales process?
0: I think it's a bit of both, to be honest with you. If I take a step back and look at, okay, what was my role? Although it was focused on generating revenue with the existing product that we had, it was the market feedback that I was sort of responsible for Having to channel that and communicate that on a daily basis to the tech, understanding what the market needs, what it doesn't, bringing on that first customer, seeing what value they got from it, and then if the if it wasn't, if I was booking those meetings and and showing a demonstration, and I was you know, told that it wasn't something that they were willing to invest in, and then it was really important for me to have those conversations with those prospects. So I definitely think that it's both. It's really important to have a minimum viable product so you could open up that dialogue. But the reality is I don't know the number, but whenever I speak to my VC friends or early stage investors, they would always say that ninety nine percent of products are iterated, not even necessarily pivots right, but actually iterated on so it was fun it was a fundamental part of my role to be able to communicate that market feedback and bring on those customers so that we can see what works, what is bringing that value, and then just iterating and iterating and iterating until you get ten customers that are all happy and then you're actual market is resonating with your messaging and your product
1: makes a lot of sense okay and so that's like what i really wanted to dig into is um obviously you were the first hire in the organization and resources were obviously quite scarce when you started so you picking up the phone cold calling people how did you know what people to go after because there is that limited time to actually get revenue on the board and actually get that traction so what what kind of identification tools did you use to find those right prospects and identify those personas?
0: I think you know you all. We should all start off with personas, understanding the product, what the value of the product is, and then draw out exactly who are the personas. So who are those individuals that would find value from the technology? And really dig deep, really understand, and try to get into into those personas' heads. And then that is going to be driving like your communication strategy, like right? How are you communicating with them? Where do they live? So if it's a marketer, then marketers tend to be they are prominent on LinkedIn, and it could be that some you know enjoy Facebook, but we know that VP of sales, you know, they'd be a lot more receptive to a cold call. So first of all, understanding the persona understand and really drawing out and going into detail and understand understanding like the day-to-day how they work how they operate how what language you can use to resonate with them and then deliver the value prop through those channels and I think that if you're able to nail the personas and draw out all those personas and the different messaging that resonates with them you can then a/B test all those different channels. So I knew right from the get go that it would be a VP of marketing, like heads of marketing or heads of sales. So I just drew up all of the different personas that were, you know, junior, mid-level, senior. What their pain points were, and commu- started to communicate to them through that
1: channel. Okay, perfect. And obviously, talking about channels, there, I know that historically, like in has always been a very outbound-focused company. Like, when do you think that? as an early stage company, is it always right that outbound's the right model to kick off and get the operations running or do you think marketing's got a big play a big role to play in that kind of really early stage of the organization to start getting some inbound traffic?
0: I think when you're early stage, then it's important to test both of those channels. Now, there are instances where outbound does not work, where the economics just do not make sense. So if you are running a business where the ACV is less than 10,000 a year, then it just isn't going to make sense for you to be running an outbound process. It's just going to be far too expensive and you're just not going to get that payback Mm -hmm. in time. Now, when it comes to marketing, marketing is all about driving content. It's about generating leads, driving people to the website. Now, I'm a big fan of content-led marketing strategies. We all are, where are at Cognizant. And and I think when, you're, when you have a content marketing strategy, it's long-term. So you're not really going to be able to see the impact. So what I would advise businesses to do is that if your ACV is sitting you know, above that 10K mark, A-B test both. And it's not even just A-B testing. I would invest in both of those channels. It could be that the product that you are selling doesn't exist on the market nor do individuals think that it exists on the market and therefore no one's going to be searching for it that's where outbound really comes into play when you're really starting to open up that conversation and educate the market and that's where content also comes in so having a long-term educational content strategy is really helpful early stage so i would say both i mean if i did it all over again i would definitely invest in both channels and the great thing about having both strategies because it could be that marketing ends up working for you really well so at cognizant the strategy was that we would end up having you know more marketing generated leads eventually but when, he, when it comes to outbound and you're, and you're having those conversations with the market, you're able to understand like what's really resonating. And then the salesperson should be communicating that to the marketer so that it's driving an aligned strategy and that marketing also have the same visibility. Because an SDR or an AE's role really is it, it's, it's marketing, right? So we say SDRs that they're sales, but actually what they are doing is that they're marketing the product. It's just using another channel,
1: essentially. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I think just my interpretation is like exactly the same, like outbound get as much input in as possible at um, an early stage because you're exactly right when you said the, that feedback loop going back into product to make sure that you can develop the product. So yeah, really, really interesting. You touched on there about SDRs. Can you just talk me through, like, obviously you were in charge of kind of scaling the operation at Cognizant. How did you know when it was the right time to really put the, the foot on the gas and really start building out a, a really big team of SDRs?
0: When I started working, I think, is the, is the simple answer. So it was back in the day, it was myself and two SDRs, one of which was you. And when we started getting the volume in and I was at capacity, then in order to have somebody else, so have another AE, have somebody else with a quota, we needed more capacity. So once I was at capacity, that was the indicator, right? So I'm generating the revenue, my conversion rates are good. If we bring somebody into that role, we need the capacity. And because we didn't have a lot of marketing-generated leads, it was a no-brainer. So for that AE or for somebody to move into that role, we then started, then we hired an additional two, right? so that was the trigger i i would just advise you know those businesses that i think okay right now is the time to pull the trigger is just to ensure that those numbers like make sense that you are getting the value out of each of those
1: contributors okay and like looking at the first hires you made like what is like the obviously that's very very important for the business to like fuel the pipeline for that first account executive like what traits are you looking for you've hired I can't. I can't even remember how many SDRs we've we've had over the over time. But like, what are the key key takeaways you've seen from the really really high performers that you've hired? It's such a
0: difficult question, John, because they've the attributes that I looked for early stage are so different to the type of SDR that you know I would approve before I'd left Cognizant, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you know that's also like an interesting point. Early stage, I would say that you want somebody who's like curious. Who has an entrepreneurial flair to them? So either they're they aspiring to become an entrepreneur, and they've demonstrated that in their experience, you know, however little experience that they had, um, whether that is, you know, doing some in town work for another another startup or setting up their own business whilst at university. So I think that entrepreneurial flair is really important. I think somebody who's very creative, so can really think outside the box. So I've been really fortunate to be working with, uh, with you know, a number of different uh, SaaS businesses. And if there's anything that I've learned when it comes to the SDR function is that there's so much noise out there and it's not just a case of giving a an SDR 100 contacts and telling them to cold call and send an email. It's really important to think outside the box and for those that you bring into the organisation, for them to get creative and think about how am I going to interact and engage with this prospect when there is so much noise out there. The early stage SDRs also are fundamental to, to feeding back market feedback right because i was doing the demos but actually it was the responsibility of the first few SDRs to tell me how the conversations went why it wasn't of interest or what other competitors were out there so always curious curiosity is a really really important early stage
1: so how does that like you said then that like it changes as like the company grows like what what different traits are you looking for then in kind of an organization once it's scaled
0: Yeah, so if we, uh, I'll take this as an example. So one of my first SDRs was super, super operational. So he really helped create some of the great operational processes that we have in place at the moment. And that was really important. He was also really great at documenting um, like the playbook. So I'd ask him to, you know, put together a playbook and he he loved that and he loved creating those processes. Now, as time had progressed and maybe, you know, a year ago, there have definitely been some SDRs who love the operation, uh, the operational, I guess, a part of the role and really love contributing. However, sometimes those individuals go off, off piece Now, with my early SDR, they could have gone off-piece, but because I was directly managing them, I can manage the activities and ensure that the focus was there. But also, that role, that operational SDR, was really important and valuable at that time. Now, having somebody who comes into the business that is operational – And then is maybe slightly unfocused because they want to, they're constantly contributing towards how to, you know, create these processes. That can be a distraction. And the reality is that when you get to this stage, when you're scaling, you really need every single SDR to be contributing those SQOs and those opportunities that are generated. So it's all about keeping focus and understanding like what someone's skill set is.
1: Okay, so... Basically, as, as the company grows and like they need to have that tunnel vision, they need to be solely focused on their revenue. Is that that kind of the key takeaway then?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, interesting. Okay, so one question or one area that I'm really interested to get your insight on is around hiring A players into the SDR team at Kongism. Did you always look to hire A players, or did you look to hire B players when there was a lot less growth in the team and there was a lot less promotion so finding those individuals that are a bit more comfortable being in the role for one or two years what was what was your kind of methodology and process on that
0: A players A players A players A players I always hired A players always hire A players and I think that's been consistent and I haven't I haven't digressed from that. I've always wanted to ensure that we had a best class team. Now, that's not to say that you hire somebody and that they are going to be smashing their targets consistently for the first three months. There's always going to be individuals that take longer to get there. However, they are A players, as far as I'm concerned, because I know that they're willing to do the work. So the quality of the candidates always stayed at that par.
1: Yeah, so Nasma, like looking, and obviously you're hiring loads of A players for the, for the organization. Do you think that every single person that joins the organization at that very early stage, do you think they're necessarily the right people for when you go through to that kind of scaling phase? Or is it a different kind of people you need to bring into the organization at a, a later date?
0: I think it just depends on the individual. I don't necessarily think that every single person that you're going to be hired early stage is going to be able and want to scale as a company s- scales. So I do think it's case by case. Mm-hmm. It's not a given that everybody is going to be able to scale, but it's not a given that everyone is, everybody that you've hired early stage does not have the ability to scale. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions in SaaS that you know your team, your current team, when you, when you hire your core team, they aren't going to be with you when you're Series A, post-Series A or post-Series B. I mean, I'm a great example of that and so are you and i think that if you want to scale i don't i don't see there being a reason why someone can't scale now there are certain factors for example and i'll be the first one first person to say this i'm not like the quickest learner so i haven't you know i've been in situations where i've started a role and then there's been like, my peers who have just really <laughs> absolutely smashed their targets first few months and it just took me longer but I know that it just takes work. And if I want to do the work, then I know that the opportunity is there. So I think it's a two-way street, right? Whether the company wants to motivate and support those who want to scale as a business scales, but also whether that individual wants to scale, because it does end up becoming a very different job, right? Like we experienced it. It's a completely different job to managing, managing a sales team in we were pre-series A is very different to managing the team right now
1: sure absolutely that makes a lot of sense and like looking at the I suppose looking at the evolution of yourself going through cognizant like going as that in the first individual contributor how did you overcome like some of the inexperience that you you might have had like did you have what what's your what's your advice to people going through like a very similar high growth scaling organization and really getting exposure and having the experience like do you think that you just learn on the job or did you have like external mentors that really helped you
0: I yeah i had a bit of both i had uh, external mentors that were great i also was learning on the job and i also i understand that i don't know everything and i think that the reason why probably one of the main reasons why i've been able to scale is because I accepted that I didn't know everything. So I was significantly more curious than probably someone who has done the same role before because maybe perhaps they feel like, okay, this is the way that I've done before. And I think there's a lot of value. And I think that I it was probably at my advantage. I didn't know anything because I was curious and I wouldn't just accept an article or someone's advice. I'd always A-B test, right? So that curiosity, I think, really helped Me A/B test what works, what didn't help me make decisions confidently, and also help me scale. But I wanted to, right? Like I, I really wanted that opportunity to scale, and I was able, and I was willing to put in all of the work and all of my energy into into doing that.
1: Sure. All right. So Nazmud, like obviously we've gone into a lot of detail there around kind of the hiring for SDRs and what you look for trait wise. I suppose one of the core roles is like that BDM function. So is it true that every single SDR is a great fit for the BDM position in your experience? Or do you think there's certain skills and attributes that differ between, the, between someone in the SDR role looking to progress into that BDM position?
0: Okay, my answer is going to be controversial.
1: Very good.
0: I believe that every SDR can become a successful AE. Like, I genuinely do believe that whether that SDR is going to enjoy that role it's it's very specific to that individual's goals what they enjoy doing how they want their day-to-day run run. so that's genuinely like what my opinion is I think that every SDR that you bring into an organization doesn't necessarily end up becoming an AE but i worked with a variety of different SDRs Because every single person, I think, is definitely worth noting that every single AE in the business at Cognizant started off as an SDR. They did the SDR role in some capacity. And these may have been individuals that moved from one department to another. It was part of that process to actually do the SDR role and then get promoted into the AE. Now, there's been certain individuals that have taken significantly longer you know, we're talking six months longer than than perhaps like what we'd call or what would objectively be called a top performer. But that's not to say that they they can't get to the same level. Right. It's also a matter of whether you have that time to dedicate to to investing in those individuals and whether they are ready to start ramping up based on where you are as a business. So I had the time to dedicate you know three hours a day to those SDRs that that did take longer and because I dedicate that time they were able to ramp up now at Colonism you know there's such a you know beautiful beautiful mentoring like community I guess that's built within the within the organization you know it's just about them going out and like figuring out you know how to do a demo and how to really upskill and when they're performing demonstrations but it's not necessarily a case that every that it's just not possible i think that it's absolutely possible for everyone to become an ae so to answer your question i think that each sdr in any organization does have the ability to become an ae with the right support
1: and guidance interesting okay that is quite controversial i think <laughs> for some people um now so looking at the like you said then that every sdr can go into the account executive function do you think that like based on like the acv do you think that an sdr can step straight into selling to kind of that enterprise space or do you think that that kind of that kind of role does require some external hiring
0: it depends on the business right so if the business is looking to have an organic growth. So let's just say tomorrow I start my own business and I have an enterprise technology. I hire two SDRs and SD- and then I hire an external enterprise rep. So that rep is working. Perhaps I hire two, two of those reps. And everything is working beautifully. Now, this, these SDRs, what would ordinarily happen in an enterprise sort of business in the sales function is that they'd always be shadowing and then getting exposure to exactly how the enterprise aes operate now what i would say is that ramp up time is going to be significantly different and it's whether that business has the capacity and has actually projected that it will take this long so i'm i'm not saying that it's not possible it'll just
1: take more time okay interesting okay controversial that is controversial very controversial <laughs>
0: i'm a i'm a believer in heFO no
1: i know and i think like it's one of like having been directly under under your management i think that's one of one of the key things is like that development which has been great and like something i really really liked that you implemented was around like the mentorship scheme can you just like give people a bit of context as to what what that is and how it does set the foundation for people to to get that knowledge prior to them actually getting getting that next role so
0: every single person within the organization has a mentor so i'm going to let you on a little in on a little secret john go for it so it was a tactful move for me to create this mentoring i guess this mentoring program within cognizant what happened was that i had you and hector right so i had you you two that were generating so the sales qualified opportunities And I was really stretched at the time. And I was spending, and I don't know whether you remember, I dedicated a lot of time just to make sure that, you know, doing the demo, uh, sorry, the cold call recordings and making sure that you guys were trained up and, you know, hitting your numbers. But I understood that it wasn't scalable. So we started hiring the second cohort, I involved you guys in the SDR hiring process. But as soon as they joined, I told you guys, okay, right, I want you guys to, you know, really step up. And in order for you to scale to the next level, I want you to mentor these individuals. It was actually quite, a, you know, it <laughs> the, uh, it wasn't to, I, I didn't do it because I thought, okay, great, this is going to grow into whatever it was. It was actually just to, just to relieve me of, like, all of the coaching that I had to do to get you guys up to speed. So it was just a win-win. It gave you guys more responsibility. It also allowed you, enabled you to have really good, strong relationships with the new cohort that came in. And they also felt supported, right?
1: Very sneaky. Very- <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it was, no, it's, 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 you know, it's the, it's the absolute truth. And I think that it helped, right? It helped us. And then as the company grew, because you had that absolute dedication from me, you then were happy to give that back, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that every single person that came in through that cognizant SDR function had that that feeling of, okay, I've got somebody who's completely on my side, somebody who's going to help me and ensure that I'm going to hit my numbers. Because they knew they had it, so they can't be selfish. They're never going to be selfish about it, right? Because they are very grateful for it. So it was something that was, you know, tactful to help me because I was, you know, I was super stretched, right? I just, I knew I couldn't scale in this way.
1: Sure. I'm curious, like, how did you, how do you do, like, get salespeople? Because salespeople are generally, like, very, very selfish. (laughs) So do you think it was, like, that foundation that you set in place um, of, like, you being quite a... A given manager that then set the foundation for the next generation of yeah people mentoring the new cohort like what do you what, how do you how do you get sales people to do that because generally my interpretation is that sales people generally quite selfish very focused on a number always want to be top of the leaderboards getting that collaboration how did you how did you drive that in the team
0: i think everything leads from the top right absolutely it leads from the top and you lead by example you know arguably and and if we think back to when early on when there were all the promotions that were going on and how, you know, you've been able to progress. I think I've always been, you know, super honest and transparent. And I, I feel like what I did was I honoured my word. So as people were coming through like the interview process and started working, you know, I'm, I, I made very clear expectations right and you know everyone was aligned so you understood what you needed to do in order to get to the next level and in, if you were to work that would be my promise to you that i would ensure that i would get you to where you needed to be so that was my dedication i didn't care about anything and if anything i would say that one of the most you know important and fundamental things that happened at cognizant was the fact that i'd hired sdrs before you guys that didn't work And because they didn't work, I felt like it was time for me to take some responsibility and for me just to hire people that I know would do a good job and have the ability to do a good job. And they would work hard. So as soon as I started hiring, all I thought to myself was like, it is my responsibility to get them to where they need to be. Now, you felt that, right? Like you felt that I was on your side. You felt that everything that I was doing, all of my actions, all of my behaviors and all of my everything was aligned. And you knew that I had your back. And I feel like that rubs on, right? Because You can't behave in any other way to anyone else. Well, and I I haven't seen that, right? Like, I haven't seen that cognizant. And I think, yeah, it just completely leads from the top. Leads from
1: the top, top, yeah, for sure. And I think think you're exactly right. Like, people, you look up to someone and then you envision and you continue that same path. So, yeah, exactly. And as an like obviously, the team grew quite drastically and your responsibilities evolved quite a lot how were you able to identify like what that middle management layer like who were the right candidates for that is was it always the top performers you were kind of plucking out and moving into those positions or was it other individuals
0: that's a really interesting question because you know with my revenue hat on I'm thinking well I don't want to lose my top performer right and so you've got that conflict that you've got a top performer perhaps that top performer wants to move into that role and to understand like what is if I'm just taking a top performer, but they might lack the soft skills, then that's going to end up being a bit of an issue. So what I did was I just listed out all of the attributes that I wanted from somebody that would be a middle management. Let's just call it that. And no one ever got promoted immediately. And we, you know this anyway, John, right? So there's there's never been a situation where, oh, well done, you just got promoted. There's always a progression plan. And a promotion plan. Now, if somebody is looking to move into management, there are a lot of soft skills that are involved. So what I would do is I will draft a, well, this is the expectations. These are the, you know, hard skills. These are the soft skills. And then, you know, timelines. We both sign, so we both own it. So I own the fact that they do that, then I can't question it. And they're going to move into that role. And if they don't then unfortunately we're going to have to push that promotion back or if there's somebody else that's suitable then they would take that role so I think I was always like very clear with the expectations but it doesn't start off with just looking at those individuals right because you could just look at the, the five people that you have in your team and be like okay I'm just going to like pick one but you might be picking the best out of that bunch so it's important to take a step back and understand like what is it that you need help with so as an example, I need somebody who is the managing, you know, five reps quota. I need somebody to be, um, you know, leading by example. I also then once I've done the the spec, I think about those individuals and what's lacking because then it gives me a framework, like it, it gives me like a benchmark to work off of. So if somebody is, I mean, it's silly things, right? Um, if somebody is late right let's just let it I mean it's, it's not unheard of if somebody is late but they don't see it as an issue but yeah it's going to be an issue if you're managing people or if somebody is like super focused on their role and perhaps not as helpful and they're not rude they're just not as you know proactive you would start including that into their progression the sort of document that's how I would I guess go about trying to figure out who's best for the role
1: Okay, cool. So I suppose we're kind of in the the journey of like the naught to ten. You've got that middle management in place now. I know that speaking candidly, we had some issues with with marketing historically. Like, when was the right time, and when did marketing kind of come into that picture? And how did you how did you really bring that team together alongside um, the sales function you built out?
0: Okay, so at Cognizant, I mean, I've always been a sales led. Well, I am a sales led CRO, so I didn't have experience with marketing, and the only experience that I had was when I was working collaboratively with our marketing, market, like head of marketing at the time. The strategy wasn't very content led. It was very much events. These are the events that we our audience go to. So it wasn't like thought as you know thought through and as um, cohesive as it is today i guess once our you know our first head of marketing moved on we had a gap and because there was nobody really around to pick up and uh, even like run the interview processes or collaborate with any of the advisors or consultants that we had in place that was something that i just naturally started working i guess closely with at the time ceo just like planted a little seed that this could potentially be like my responsibility and then in my mind I was like right this is something that I really want to do I I believe that in order to optimize and get the best out of like the revenue engine like marketing really needs to be working really well with sales and I mean we remember back in the day like we used to have so many conversations around okay we get really creative and this is what we can do and this is the content we need to be pushing out and unfortunately because there was an you know speaking candidly like me in the organization I, I couldn't like bring the two together right so because we were just having conversations there was nobody that was actually driving any of the strategy or any of those ideas or creativity so yeah once I was promoted I guess then we were on a mission to hire you know a great a great head of marketing and we found who is currently our CMO of Cognizant, Alice DeCourcy, who's done like a phenomenal job and I do think it's about accountability, and I think that the reason why it worked really well was because they there was you know somebody who was responsible for both functions, so there wasn't any oh well, sales aren't doing aren't actually in the leads properly, or you know yeah marketing aren't generating like the ICP and you know all all the usual nonsense that you hear because if anyone said that that would be it would be my fault right, <laughs> so it's my job to make sure that the two are working really well
1: cool and like i think one of your biggest assets from like having been in the team was your ability to combine marketing and sales together so they're operating to the same objectives like now you're advising companies do you think that's one of the a big gaps the silos between sales and marketing and how do you make sure that they do, they are working collaboratively
0: uh, yeah it's definitely a challenge in in most businesses i think for sure and that's a really tough question because when you're early stage, you're too early to have a CRO, right? Mm. So perhaps it's, well, perhaps the answer is that it's the CEO's responsibility to ensure that the two are speaking to each other and they have aligned strategies and aligned targets. So the expectations of what each of them are delivering are in tune and those are the conversations that you would have I'd also urge you know whoever is owning like the two whoever's managing like for the manager or the head of marketing or the head of of sales is you know having those conversations with with both of them so we used to have our weekly catch-up right and that was a great opportunity to discuss things that were broken things that aren't working and and speak about you know speak about everything revenue related right so I think that was really important, just to make sure that the communication is fluid, and and I think one thing actually is, is that we we had a revenue target for marketers for for the marketing function, which is actually unique. Now that I've stepped back and worked with other businesses, that the, usually the market marketing department are measured on the leads that are generated so like the funnel metrics are not actually the revenue metrics so I think that there's definitely a gap there because at the end of the day it's very easy for a marketer to say well actually I've hit my targets and I've generated you know 2,000 leads last month and the sales team then say okay right but these are all dog shit and we can't really do anything with that and the marketer is going to say well I did my job right because that is literally the job so it's also about just ensuring and aligning on metrics that matter. Like what matters are opportunities that are generated through through these functions, right? Whether it's outbound, whether it's marketing. So measure people on what really matters.
1: Yeah, sure. I think that's one thing you did great was that everything was aligned to revenue. And I think that giving marketing that actual tangible number to work towards and give them a percentage of that revenue each month they had to to bring in, like from from being in the sales team, it was perfect because we had qualified opportunities coming through and it was in marketing's interest to actually deliver high quality ops. So yeah, I thought I thought it's a really, really differing way that um you set it up and it worked perfectly. So Nasma like I know we've gone through kind of a lot of the the journey from that naught to ten now. So looking back like what what were your biggest achievements like what what were you you really really proud of that you managed to set up
0: you of course um (laughs) but aside from you I think I'm like most proud of the fact that I was able to honor my words and I was able to honor I guess all the things that I'd promised individuals through the journey as long as we were completely open and transparent about what the expectations were that they would be able to achieve the things that they wanted to achieve from the business, so I'm really really happy that essentially like not only has my life changed you know, through this process but many many individuals you know have come into cognizant with the first job and yeah it's been a phenomenal journey for them so that's what I'm proud of that's
1: good it's nice no I think it's really it's true, it's been, it's true. It, no, it's, it makes a lot of sense and so and now you've left I suppose that so we can kind of ask these questions and please do be as honest as possible because I'd be really interested to know is there any regrets you've got anything that you would have like changed or um done a bit differently
0: um I mean that's such a difficult question because I think whenever anyone asks you oh do you have any regrets your go-to answer is yeah no I don't have any regrets because you know you know I am where I am <laughs> because of everything that's happened and yeah I don't want to give give you just like a flaky answer like that I think if I just look back in life the things that I regret are when I haven't given something 100% or Mm. I haven't focused maybe if I just like go back right from the early stages I'd probably be a bit more aggressive I'd be a lot more numbers driven so I'd be aggressive with the product direction but I would have done that in a sort of in a way where I was producing metrics and saying okay right I've got these 10 opportunities and then did these 10 individuals will sign on the dotted line if we had like this tech and I think that would have accelerated I guess what we knew right that we, need, we needed to develop so I think it's really important to like quantify so perhaps I would have I would have been a lot more like numbers driven but I didn't know much about like how much the entirety of like the business the process has been driven through like mathematics right is there the science to it so i probably would have just had a bit more of a science driven approach to some of yeah my approaches and what else would i do i regret yeah not really much to be honest with you and i know that's probably going to sound lame and arrogant but if it's been a rocket ship right and we've been able to achieve great things over the last 3 years and yeah I mean if I change anything then perhaps it wouldn't have been that way
1: yeah I know what you mean like if you (laughs) you have to learn don't you and I think a lot of the stuff that's come out was because we maybe didn't do stuff correctly correctly the first time and then you iterate so yeah 100% with you on that and yeah so obviously you've now left cognizant, which is really sad news for everyone in the team but um I'm really interested personally like what what is next for Nasma? like what what are you looking to do
0: okay so you know how everyone used to ask me this whether i was head of sales vp CRO, what's next and i've never planned that far ahead like ever right even when i started cognizant i never thought that i'd even have a team of five let alone like 40 before i left right and i think for me now i'm just focused on the next three months so at the moment i'm still working in this a capacity it's definitely not full time it's not full time for me and um i'm just seeing what opportunities come my way so i'm just you know giving my each day 100 percent and just keeping my eyes and ears
1: peers okay so next next time we do one of these we got an exclusive from you where you're going to be where you're going to be next yes yes you will i can hold you to that, that sounds cute okay well Nasma, thank you so much like it's been a pleasure talking to you and i hope the listeners get some amazing insights because i know nasma has been the key person driving the revenue growth at cognizant so yeah it's really really great to look back reflect and um have this chat with you and yeah please do tune in for next one thank you Nasma.
0: thanks thanks a lot john it's been a pleasure